and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Rory, a senior science writer at TN, and on this podcast, we discuss the best and weirdest science that's popped into our inboxes over the last couple of weeks. Today, I am joined by my colleague, Molly Campbell. How are you, Molly? Hey, Rory. I am great, thank you. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well as well, and I'm very excited about this podcast because today, Molly is going to be discussing a truly groundbreaking piece of research that has used genetic therapies to partially restore the vision of a blind patient. And I am going to talk about puppies, which I think is a very equitable division of labor. And it's everything you need from a podcast. I completely agree. <laughs> Great. Well, Molly, could you please maybe start off with this piece of uh, revolutionary research? Yeah, you might even call it visionary. Oh, there you go. There you go. That's <laughs> why we do it. That's why we do it. <laughs> Yeah, so this study that I'm talking about is a pioneering clinical trial, and as such, the study is called Pioneer. Um, collaborative research study, and it's focusing on the use of optogenetic therapy to help treat blindness disorders. So perhaps we start a little bit by talking about optogenetics, um, because for those who are unfamiliar, it it's a really interesting, it's a biological tool. Um, it's been used in neuroscience for, I think about 15 years ago, it was, was first discovered. Um, the principle basically in sort of layman's terms is we render cells or in the case of neuroscience as a tool, neurons sensitive to light. And we do this by delivering basically ge genetic manipulation and what this means is that we can essentially use light to turn neurons on and off. So in a research context, this is really useful because if you want to know what a neuron does, what role it plays in the brain, by turning it off, maybe in an animal model, you, you can study the impact of turning that neuron off. And it's helped scientists sort of decipher the roles of neurons. It's helped contribute to our understanding of disease. Um, it's also being explored as a therapy for epilepsy, which I can maybe touch on a little bit after we've, we've spoken about this initial study. Um, so yes, the Pioneer Study, collaborative effort. It involved researchers including Jose Alan Sahel and Baton Rosca, who are both distinguished professors um, working in the field of ophthalmology. The study is published in Nature Medicine. For those of you who want to go check it out afterwards, we can link that in the show notes. But basically, the, the study focuses on a clinical trial and it's the initial results are focusing on one individual. However, the study itself has not only focused on one individual. So I'll get into that a little bit later as well. But so is this just like a, sorry, is this just like a little taster then? Yeah, so it was actually complicated by COVID in terms of study recruitment and follow-up. Um, so these are sort of preliminary findings from one individual. So it's, it's important to bear that in mind because obviously with, with any scientific study, you have to consider the, the results based on the number of participants. But as an initial preliminary study, the results are really exciting. So I'm going to start by giving you all a bit of an analogy, which I've taken from the scientist um, leading this today, Roska. So he's talking about retinitis pigmentosa, which essentially describes a group of genetic disorders. And these disorders cause a breakdown of the cells in the retina of the eye. <clears throat> Excuse me. So 
to give you the analogy, the retina can kind of be likened to a computer at the back of your eye. So we're going to think of this as a hamburger. Okay. <laughs> so we have our we have our burger, and the top bun is what we call a photosensitive layer. So that's your top red bun, and the bottom bun is what we would call the ganglion layer in in the burger in in the eye. So the ganglion layer helps to form the optic nerve, which, as we know, relays information to the visual system in the eye. And between these two buns in a burger, you'd find your salad, you'd find your tomato, your meat. You might find some cheese, depending on how you feel. And maybe it's a cheeseburger. <laughs> in the retina, you'd find this computational layer and this layer computes visual information. So what we have in the eye is cells known as photoreceptors. And these photoreceptors use um, proteins to sense light and they deliver this information to the visual part of the brain for processing. And that is a very, very lay summary of how we, we see. I just don't so, know if I can, sorry, just don't know if I can eat a burger again after that. I know, just maybe try and try and get the, the vision of the burger as an eye out of your head and just focus on the succulent hamburger in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> so in this group of genetic disorders, um, what happens is the photosensitive layer, which is the top one that we talked about, it's damaged, but the rest of the burger is intact. So what this means is that we've got some of the machinery to see, but we don't have this light sensing capability. And it, it means the retina is blind, essentially. Um, so retinitis pigmentosa, as I say, it's a genetic disorder. It's challenging to treat because there are so many different types um, and the type that an individual has will really depend on the specific genetic mutation that they carry. And so if you can imagine this huge variation across different people makes it really challenging to create um, a one fits all treatment strategy. So that's why Gene therapy is kind of really exciting for these kind of disorders because it's an example of personalized medicine. We're taking the individual, we're looking at the specific cause of their disease and we're tailoring a treatment based, based on their, how their disease presents, essentially. So in this clinical trial, the researchers developed an optogenetic therapy and it targets the ganglion cells. So what they've done is essentially in this individual who is the individual that I talked about being in the clinical trial as a single person for which we've got these initial results. This was a 58 year old man. He'd been diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa 40 years ago. So, you know, he'd gone through a large part of his life blind essentially. So the researchers delivered a gene for this protein that we talked about that can sense light. And this is called channel redopsin. And it was a very particular gene for a protein known as crimson R. And this was delivered to the gentleman's worst seeing eye, so the eye that was, you know, most severely blind. Um, and it was delivered using an adeno-associated viral vector. So uh, we might be familiar with vectors based on the vaccine use that we've obviously been surrounded by lately. But let's think of it as kind of a cargo that's carrying, carrying this gene. And so the gene was delivered and once that gene is delivered, the protein has to be expressed and then the protein needs to be activated. So what's interesting about this work is the researchers developed goggles and what these goggles can do is essentially they capture light and it's kind of like a camera that functions like the visual system. So the camera captures light 
in these goggles and then projects the images onto the retina. And this is the retina that has received the genetic manipulation um, to express the protein that senses light. So the camera captures projects that light onto the retina, but it's at a very particular wavelength that basically activates these proteins that have been delivered via the optogenetic therapy. Are we all, does, does that make sense so far? I'm still hanging on. Yeah, great, great stuff. So obviously when you're injecting um, a gene therapy, you have to wait a period of time to ensure that the proteins are being expressed and the quantities at which they're being expressed at can be measured. So that's what the researchers did. So they essentially, they observed this patient for a couple of months um, waiting basically to start to start testing in the laboratory. And over this period, the patient reported to, to the team that he was starting to be able to see some stripes when he was looking at the street. So we crossed in the road and you could see some, some, some light appearing in, in his field of vision. So the next step was to take said gentleman into a laboratory environment and to conduct some different experiments that were basically quantifiable. Um, so these involved a series of tests, uh, things like sitting the gentleman at a table, placing objects in front of him and seeing if he could basically detect, locate and also navigate his hands to touch the items that were on the table. So when the patient was wearing the goggles, he was able to touch a notebook on the table correctly 36 times out of 39 times that were tested. So that's a score of 92%. Um, he was also then asked to locate and pick up a staple box. So if we think of the size comparison here, a staple box is much smaller, um, but this was achievable 36% of the time. This was only when he was able to wear the goggles, which if we remember, these goggles are responsible for relaying the light to the channel redoxins at a very particular wavelength. So it's part of the therapy. So, I mean, those numbers are pretty good. What does it mean in terms of brain activity, which was the next question that the researchers wanted to know. So they conducted EEG scans of the patient whilst he was in this laboratory environment. Um, so he's basically asked whether he could see a glass tumbler present on the table or not, or whether that glass tumbler had been removed. And when he could see it, it was asked to press a button on a lever to indicate that he could see it. And basically what the researchers did was measure his brain activity in the visual area of the brain to measure whether it corresponded with the fact that he was able to see this tumbler. And they found that it did. So collectively, this is psychophysical evidence and neurophysiological evidence from the EEG. And the researchers have con concluded from this initial study with this one gentleman that the optogenetic stimulation of the ganglion cells in this gentleman via the optogenetic therapy is a promising way to partially restore vision in this individual with this particular type of retinitis pigmentosa. So that's where we are right now. So this study, it's important to know, is, the, is what we call a dose escalation study. So what this basically means is that as more people are recruited, different doses of the gene therapy will be investigated. And this gentleman received the lowest dose that is outlined in the, the study protocol. So it's quite impressive to consider that even though he's received the lowest dose, he's, you know, a 92% score in the test. Is, is quite impressive. And it, what's also important to note that there are, as I said earlier, there are other patients that are being recruited into this trial. However, 
because of COVID, obviously you think of the logistics of getting patients in for the laboratory testing um, that is outlined by the protocol and at the specific time points outlined by the protocol. It's, it's been interrupted essentially, but the researchers noted uh, in a press conference that the trial is resuming and they hope to be able to publish some more data with some more individuals with the different doses at a later date. But I mean, they're very excited about, about what they found so far in four for a disease area that is extremely limited, I think it's quite exciting to see this mm-hmm. this therapy be being adopted and actually being tested in humans because I think with gene therapy, that's the biggest barrier that we see. It's that translation from research in an academic clinic to then being taken to humans at, at the bench side, basically. So that's the pioneer trial, Rory. What do you think? So one thing I was wondering, you know, there's so many different types of RP that have um, so many different presentations. For this particular individual, Molly, did it say what his experience was like without uh, the goggles on? Was he able to, what was his, his success rate for, for finding things in the tests? Yeah, so that's a really good question, Rory. So the paper actually states that without the goggles on, the patient was not able to perceive the objects under his natural vision. So he didn't even attempt to count the objects that were on the table or to locate them because he physically could not see them. That's incredible. So to go from that to 92% success rate. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's really impressive. And a low dose as well. So it will be so interesting to see the kind of results that the team get when they're escalating the dose to higher levels. Absolutely. And, and, for, for this, for RP more generally, how many people are we talking about benefiting here? So, as I say, it's, it's a group of collective disorders and our understanding at the moment is that it can be caused by mutations in over 71 different genes. So, collectively, it's estimated that more than 2 million people worldwide are affected by retinitis pigmentosa, obviously in various different severities, but yeah, over 2 million people. So... It's a really, really incredible achievement, and I'm looking forward to to seeing more from the Pioneer study. But you know, we're we're we've got pretty high stakes here, Molly. You know, we've got millions of people affected with the disease. We've got an optogenetic therapy that's you know restoring vision to blind people. I think we need to dial it down a bit. And, you know, relax a little bit. So let's let's talk about puppies, shall we? Show me the puppies. <laughs> I will show you the puppies. So uh, anyone who has ever met a puppy knows they are really, really happy to be around people. And, and generally, people are, are usually pretty happy to be around puppies. Are you a dog person, Molly? Oh, absolutely. Good. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm glad because I need you to close your ears because this is going to be very dog heavy for the next five, 10 minutes. So this close coexistence between humans and dogs goes back potentially, we reckon, over 20,000 years ago. And over that time, the domestic dog has changed quite dramatically from its wolf predecessor. So this has happened in kind of physical ways. So um, the most characteristic changes are dogs' floppy ears, changes to their jawline, the changes to their coloration, and changes to their behavior as well. So um, over over these thousands of years, there's been numerous changes to dogs' personality, and dogs' breeds are routinely classified according to temperament. And genetic factors are unsurprisingly thought to play a key role in controlling how certain breeds of dog respond to humans. But whilst it's you know, been widely noted that this is the case and that certain types of dogs are the 
you know, favored ones for having particular types of personality. There's been a lot less research examining exactly how dogs interact with humans at the earliest stages of their life and what contributions, say, genetic factors might have specifically to uh, different aspects of social communication. So to do this, some extremely lucky researchers from the University of Arizona, who've published their study in Current Biology, managed to acquire funding to test and you're talking about small N numbers in the previous study, Molly, they managed to test 375 eight-week-old puppies on their socialization mm-hmm. skills. Wow. Can you imagine writing that grant? Oh. <laughs> I just, you just have to use so much jargon to just try and convince the funders you weren't just doing it for the, for the pets. Now, the team wanted to specifically test how puppies responded to social communication from humans. And their hypothesis was that if dogs' social communication skills like their floppy ears were hereditary, then they should, and I'll quote from the paper here, emerge robustly in early development and not require extensive socialization or learning and exhibit heritable variation. So to test this, they came up with a battery of tasks. So some of these were um, behavioral tests, but they also, as we'll see later on, did some genetic tests uh, to assess social communication in these puppies. So... Let's go through these tasks, which are all extremely cute. So initially they had something called a gesture pointing task where a lucky researcher was placed in front of a puppy and sat between two uh, cups. And under one of these cups was a delicious treat. And the researcher was told to uh, look at the puppy and point to the cup with the treat under it. And they were using a very specific script, which was to say, puppy, look. And uh, they then measured whether or not the puppy successfully found the treat after having it pointed out to them. Uh, They also used a a second kind of communication task, which involved the researcher putting a marker, a colored marker next to the treat containing container. And then they did a a couple of other tests, which more generally involved assessing the puppy's interest in humans. So in one of them, the experimenter stood kind of outside this initial testing arena and addressed the dog. Now, here they used a standardized script using what they called dog-directed speech, which means they used kind of high, high-pitched baby voice. And uh, while speaking, the experimenter timed the duration of the puppy's gaze to their face. Now, I poured through the methods and materials for this paper, which is actually pretty extensive given we're we're just doing behavioral tests on dogs. And I managed to find the exact script they used when talking to the puppies here. Do you want to hear it, Molly? Oh, wow. Yes, please. Are we doing role play? We are doing. I mean, I don't know if the puppy (laughs) responded, so it might might just be me monologuing here, but let's go. They said... Hi, pup. Are you a good puppy? Yes, you are. What a good puppy. Oh, look how cute you are. Look at those big eyes and floppy ears. You're such a cute puppy. Do you like to play? Are these experiments fun? You're coming back. I mean, it goes on for quite some time, actually, but you get the gist. You get the gist. It was very cute puppy talk. Okay. And then if the puppy then came over to them and paid attention to them, they petted the dog and timed the petting duration that the dog was willing to engage in. I mean, I don't know if they were ever enrolling for this particular PhD, but you know I would have been signing up instantly. Uh, they finally did one task, which made me go, oh, when I heard about it, they, um, they trained some of the puppies to open a container containing uh, a delicious treat, but then they glued the container shut and let the puppies work out that the task was unsolvable. And they then measured whether the puppies would look to, to humans to get them to do it instead. So 
after all of these these tasks, they assessed how well the puppies responded. Now, they found that in response to the pointing gesture task, where they pointed out a particular treat or where they put a colored marker next to the treat, the dogs found the treat far above chance, roughly 65 to 70% of the time they were able to find the, the task. And importantly, they did this from the very earliest trials. And I thought it was, it was good they, they specified this because, of course, with a, a behavioral task like this, the humans could be giving off any number of subtle cues that the, the dogs could be pick, picking up on. So it might make it hard to work out whether they're responding specifically to the pointing gesture. But even in the, the very initial tasks, before they could have learned any additional social cues, the dogs were, were solving this with way above chance um, performance. Uh, I should also note that they use an olfaction cue where there was no pointing, but the dogs were simply allowed to pick one of the containers to look for the treat. Now, the dogs in this scenario weren't able to perform above chance, which means that the, the puppies' wee noses weren't just sniffing out the treat, which I thought was uh, important to yeah. um, important to specify. Now, in the human interest task, the dogs responded very well to when humans addressed them in a, a cute little baby voice, uh, but less so in the unsolvable tasks uh, with the glued on lid. And what the researchers took from this was that while the social interaction skills were involving, so the puppies were, you know, very, from a very early age, able to look at humans uh, in response to social engagement, they maybe weren't. Um, yet able to engage the humans and to request something from them as in to, to get them to help them with the task and that that kind of behavior might evolve later. Now, after these behavioral tasks were done, they then did some um, genetic testing on the dogs to, to find out what kind of percentage of variance derived from the, the dog's genetics. So they found that roughly 43% of the variation between dogs in, this, in the pointing task um, we're down to genetic factors. That's that's quite an interesting stat because that's roughly the same level of heritability, heritability that accounts for variation uh, in cognitive skills amongst humans. So it kind of gives you a, a sort of idea of how significant that uh, variation is. Now, so uh, you know, summing up all these findings together, um, the the researchers said that the important thing here was that you know whilst there's been all these presumptions before that. Um, tame ability, uh, temperament are inherited characteristics. They're now able to put a number on it and to, to say exactly, you know, this is the, the level of genetic contribution to these factors. Now, whilst they weren't able to tease out any brain mechanisms, they said this wasn't the point of their study and that they were nonetheless able to kind of theorize that perhaps as wolves and, and early canids became domesticated, uh, early humans would pick dogs that were less fearful of humans um, to domesticate and that these tra traits would therefore be selected for. Now, um, that means that they eventually started to see humans as potential cooperative partners. And it's therefore unsurprising that um, they sort of co-opted social cognitive processes that the dogs might have previously used um, with other dogs. And some interesting other studies have even shown that wolves actually perform better than dogs do um, in interacting with other other wolves as opposed to how dogs interact with other dogs which suggests that you know these kind of uh, social cognitive skills have been have been shared out amongst domesticated dogs uh, to involve humans really strongly so I think it gives a, a fascinating insight into both how dogs have um, socially 
arisen and, and become domesticated, but also it gives insight into maybe how these kind of skills develop in the human brain as well. So I'm looking forward to them um, expanding on this study with, say, more dog breeds, maybe comparing to, to wolves and uh, you know, increasing the battery of tasks that they, they undertook. What do you think, Molly? Do you, know what, do you know what? My first thought is that's quite a robust study. Isn't it? You know, yeah, like I'm thinking of like previous examples of studies I've read about in neuroscience involving humans. And I'm thinking <laughs> they weren't as robust as this. And this is in dogs. <laughs> Not messing um, about, okay? Yeah. And that, that end number as well. <laughs> I know, well, it puts mine to shame, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, they, um, they used, I can tell you for a little breakdown, 254 Labrador Golden Retriever crosses, 98 Labradors, and 23 golden retrievers so there you go interesting so i used to have a labrador so that is quite interesting to know but i do think with these i mean these are the kind of studies where they're almost they're for interest aren't they do we think what's your opinion on that i think as, as i said well sort of summing up there i think it is important in in these kind of studies to put numbers on things and to to work out you know especially if a field has been basing its its you know the the center points of the field on assumptions it's good to confirm it um, yeah. and i mean would have this been, would have this have been a more significant study if they found that there was absolutely no heritability of this absolutely because that would really have sort of under undermined a lot of the the theory around how dogs socialize so yeah. In that case, it's it's maybe not as surprising a study, and it's certainly not as you know surprising as um, you know, a blind individual going from not being able to see anything to being able to pick up a cup ninety two percent of the time. But nonetheless, I, I think it's it's you know it's different dimensions of science, but it's, it's nonetheless important to use robust studies to confirm theories in a field, um, especially one as as you say nebulous as behavioral science, where often some of the the landmark studies don't really hold up under under tight scrutiny. Yeah, I completely agree. So, I'm sorry, I phrased that a little bit, not how I intended to. So, the, re <laughs> the reason I said that was, I don't know if I've just researched and written about genetics for too long, but whenever I now come across something that is trait research and genetic underpinnings of such traits, I just, my head goes to CRISPR. <laughs> Oh. Because I then start thinking, you know, what are the implications if you know the genetic underpinnings that contribute to behaviours? What happens if you can switch them up? You know? It's meant to be a, a relaxed study, Molly. Now you're talking about genetic <laughs> modification again. Ah! And I shall tell you the reason for why my, my brain has gone to that because I watched a documentary on Netflix um, called Unnatural Selection. I don't know, have mm. you seen it, Rory? I've not, no. Um, there's a part in the documentary that focuses on a gentleman in America and he works close with biohackers and he, I, I mean, I don't know the legal implications of this. He's looking to genetically manipulate his dogs. He's a dog breeder, which I know obviously that can be done in natural means, but particularly mm -hmm. using CRISPR. And that's, that's just where my head went towards the end of the study when you're talking about genetics complete sideways from what we're talking, talking about but yeah just no it's it, it is important and I, I i think you should we we should remember though that 
um, you know, forty-three percent statistics still means that the majority of variation is absolutely nothing to do with with genetics. Yeah. Um, even for something as presumably heavily selected for as how good dogs are as interacting with humans, you know, this is a a species that has had, as I said earlier, twenty thousand years of really heavily directed breeding um, to pick out these particular traits, and it's still not even the majority of uh, variance is, is attributed to that. So, um, you know, it, 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 it's interesting to, to think about how significant those uh, CRISPR efforts will be and, and whether or not they, there'll be something that catches on in the long run, but it's, it's important to consider. Yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm just disappointed that they didn't go for, you know, get pugs in, get a Pomeranian mm-hmm. in, Great Dane, you know, because I, I would always think that Labradors and um, and Golden, Golden Retrievers have fairly similar kind of temperaments. So I'll be interested to see if they do a, a follow-up study where they get, a, I don't know, a Doberman and a Chow Chow and see if they uh, they do the same things. Yeah, absolutely. And also Terriers, because I had a Terrier um, and I, I knew the breeders. Um, so I knew the rest of the litter and he was just one of his own compared to the rest of the litter. So yeah, be interesting to see if they repeat it in different types of dogs, what their, mm-hmm. what their findings are. And as someone who's owned both, I really would love a follow-up study just to ask, answer the question, why after, again, thousands of years of selective breeding, cats still just don't give a toss what you want them to do? Oh, honestly, maybe not just do anything. <laughs> that's where the real funding is anyway molly thank you very much for talking with me about your fascinating study and listening to me talk about puppies um, and that's all we have for today's opinionated science but we'll be back in two weeks time with more weird and wonderful science news so until then please do like share and subscribe to our podcast and please let us know what you think don't keep your opinions to yourself bye for now <laughs>